works, and thy thoughts are very deep. A brutish, the brute, a brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. When the wicked spring like the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. For thou, Lord, art most high forevermore. For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Mine eye also shall see my desire upon mine enemies. Mine ear shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. I've uh, mentioned on earlier occasions that these inscriptions sometimes are helpful, but they are not inspired, especially this one. It was added at a later date, but it probably is accurate. For we know that the Jews tended to reserve certain psalms for certain days. I've stumbled on a list of these. On the first day of the week, they would sing Psalm 24. Let's lift up your heads, O ye gates. Uh, on the second day of the week, Psalm 48, which is... Uh, God is an ever-present help, refuge, and so forth. Um, third day of the week, the 82nd Psalm. Fourth day, the 104th. The fifth day, the 81st. The sixth day, the 93rd. And here we are at the seventh day, the psalm that they would generally sing on the Sabbath. I am um, not sure why. There is one little reference here that tends to fit the Sabbath day, but uh, we'll let it go at that. It's appropriate no doubt, any day. It is what I would call a call to worship. It is another one of these psalm songs, which generally are those that are useful for corporate worship. You don't just say these things and sing these things by yourself. You sing them together in a group. And uh, it functions well as what we would call a call to worship. It is a call to action. A, uh, I'm thinking of the uh, football team going out on the field and there everybody singing the fight song. I played football. I don't ever even remember hearing what anybody else said anywhere else, but we had a pep squad and all the cheers and all that. I don't know. I think it just gave the girls something to do between you and me. I never remember ever hearing anything or certainly not revved up by it. But nevertheless, I suppose if you're taking the field and you hear the Notre Dame fight song, if you're, a, you know, for the Notre Dame, that is a rousing thing. Or we might think in terms of a war hymn that stirs soldiers to action. In a sense, this psalm functions like that. It is a call for us to worship our God, and as such, then it is certainly appropriate for the Sabbath day. But notice the Sabbath day uh, was not particularly a day of worship, not in the temple at least. Uh, typically, in early Israel, ancient Israel, it was a day of rest. They didn't go, didn't go to church, didn't go to synagogue. There wasn't such a thing. Later on, it became uh, the custom to assemble on the Sabbath for the synagogue, the meetings of the people in a location. But at the temple, nothing particularly important went on except for one thing. They had the morning and the evening sacrifice. 
And if you'll look at the first reference here uh, in verse 2, that the psalmist is saying he would show forth his loving kindness in the morning and his faithfulness every night. And again, this is dividing these two aspects of God's character. His loving kindness, that is, his generosity, his benevolence, his graciousness, his mercy, every morning. In the evening, I extol his faithfulness. His faithfulness being his fidelity, especially his fidelity to his truth, which of course means his fidelity to his law, which has to do then with his justice, his righteousness. And notice those two things are being extolled and the psalmist says it's a good thing. It's a good thing to give praise to God. It's a good thing to sing praises to His name. Notice the emphasis upon singing, and I've on many occasions now uh, bored you to tears, no doubt, with uh, how singing is peculiar, I think, to our worship, at least the kind of singing we do. There's nothing else quite like it anywhere else in the world any other religion that does what we do, especially the songs of love and uh, love songs, as it were, to our God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. I've often uh, wondered what is the importance of singing. You know, why is that important? Now, there are those who would say, well, it's the truth that you sing. And indeed, I don't want to downplay that. I don't want to minimize it. And indeed, that's why we need to be careful what we sing, because uh, we uh, we can easily be guilty of uh, repeating, speaking false doctrine if the hymns, the things we sing, don't echo truth. But I would have to say that singing is uh, important because it's more than just saying the words. If it were just that, we could just get up and do a recitation. We could just recite it. We can just recite a poem. Uh, What is the difference between saying and singing? I was in the swimming pool at Pine Bluff Bible Conference, 1976, and that is where the deep theological discussions take place. And, uh, you know, lots of deep water there, so you easily get over your head. And I was there with a a fellow named Edwin McClellan. I've not seen Edwin, I guess, ever since. He was in Galveston going to medical school last I heard of him. That was years and years ago. And we were talking about this very thing. What is is important about singing? And Edwin said something. It's just one of those off-the-cuff things that has stuck with me for years and years and years. He said, singing is zeal according to knowledge. I thought, you know, that's a great way of expressing it. You know, Paul said of the Jews that they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul himself is an example of that. Once he was a zealous, a zealot as a Jew, but he was persecuting the church. In other words, yeah, he was zealous for the cause of God, but it wasn't according to truth and knowledge. You see, a zeal according to knowledge is to be zealous for the truth, for that which is right, true so forth. And Edwin hit the nail on the head, I think, that saying words is all right, but singing words requires more of you. It requires zealousness. You've got to put something more into singing than just saying the words. Would everybody agree? You get more into it. You've got to put more energy into the act. Plus, singing tends to reflect, especially in our corporate worship, 
It reflects the truths that we have heard from the pulpit. Now, we, with our mouths, are echoing what we have heard said from the pulpit in one form or another. And second, thirdly, I guess it's thirdly at this point, what we see is that singing congregationally tends to mimic the qualities that we ought to see in the church, in that we sing, what is it Paul says, he would have the church speak the same things? In other words, everybody's on the same page? Well, when you're singing, everybody's got to be on the same page. I've, we've been a few times around here. We've, uh, I was going to uh, tell Amber thanks for helping us tonight, but sometimes uh, we get on a different page, and it's a disaster. Uh, singing requires you to be saying the same thing. Uh, there's a sense in which we are in concord. Concord means to speak with or sing with. We're singing with one another. We're singing in harmony. The same harmony that ought to be in the church is to be expressed in the way that we sing. There's no discord. We're not off-tune or off-key. We're not clashing with one another in our music. In other words, you see what I'm saying? It tends to, in a very interesting way, illustrate the very properties that ought to be found in the New Testament church. Notice in verses 4 and 5, we have something to sing about and praise about. The expression here in verse 4 and 5 is on, the emphasis is on the works. I'm made glad because of your work. I triumph in the works of your hand. How great are your works? Your thoughts are very deep. In other words, it is looking at the works of God and marveling at their complexity, at their intricateness, how everything works together for good, as we read in Romans 8.28. In other words, it is looking at what God has done and rejoicing in that and just sort of standing back. Um, I recall one of my higher math classes at Rice years ago. I uh, had this particular theoretical math class where you go in, you sit down, the instructor comes in, he starts writing with a piece of chalk up on the blackboard, never says a word, writes the entire class, the bell rings, he puts the chalk down walks out. real exciting. But I do recall that when he finally got through, he worked on this thing for about three days of class, when he finally completed this theorem across the blackboard, he said, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? And there is a sense that if you're a mathematician, a theorem that you have solved, that you have proven something mathematically, there is a, a, uh, a beauty to it. Uh, Robert, you're a programmer, and I can't, uh, it's skipping my mind here what the expression is when a programmer comes up with a very good way of solving a particular program. They call it elegant. It's elegant. You've probably never thought about applying the word elegant to a software program, but it's the idea that it it does the job and it does it in an elegant way. There's a... Uh, conservation of resources. In the old days, when you had these little 8-bit computers, you only had a little bit of space to put your program in. There were guys who were just great at coming up with ways of doing things with the shortest amount of code because you had to have it small to fit in the memory. And uh, very elegant, some very clever, clever programming went on in those days because you just couldn't do it. You, you know, there's a number of ways of solving a programming problem Ah, but to do it eloquently, 
to do it in a condensed version. Well, what the psalmist is saying here is he's looking at the works of God and he's amazed at them and he's realizing that the God behind these works is a God whose thoughts are very, very deep. That not just anybody could pull this off. And if we consider the plan of salvation, I mean, you can look at this in so many ways, but just take the plan of salvation. Paul says that it is displaying the wisdom of God. Here's the wisdom. You remember Paul says when he went to Corinth, I wasn't going to know anything but Christ and Him crucified. This, this is God's wisdom. I'm not going to use man's wisdom. I'm going to use His wisdom. But at the same time, the psalmist points out that just like Paul in speaking of the Corinthians, not everybody gets it. Not everybody sees the, the, this, this wisdom. Not everybody stands, if you were to walk into that math class and stare at that board, it looked like a bunch of chicken scratching to you. But to the mathematician, that's beautiful. That's elegant. In the same sense, not everybody has the ability to perceive the wisdom of God, for instance, in the plan of salvation. Paul says to those who are called, this which is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, it's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God. They get it. They see it. It's elegant. It's beautiful. So the psalmist here points out that the, he calls him the brutish man. What would, how would you describe a brute man? Tough. He's a brute. A jock. The stereotype jock. All brawn. No brains. That's the brute. The brutish man. The man who is alive on the animalish level. The man who lives like the cow, as I've said over and over again, never looks up at the skies, always got his head down looking for the next mouthful of grass. He is not standing out in the pasture contemplating where he came from. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? The cow never even thinks of those things. Do you realize that we live in a society that's populated by people exactly like the cow when it comes to those types of questions and those types of things? He's just the brute beast. Has no sense of what God is doing or has done. Notice he's the fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see the handiwork of God. He doesn't see the fingerprints of God all over creation, all over his works. He doesn't see. Uh, my friend Mike Frisbee out west used to say that the man who is born again, the uh, man who is not born again cannot see the kingdom of God. And the man who is born again can't see anything but it. That's everywhere he looks, he sees God. That's the man alive to the things of God. Every day is an adventure. Every day is a question, I wonder what God's going to do today. Did you see that? That's not accident. That's not happenstance. That's God. He sees God's fingerprints all over his work. So there is the basis of our worship, you see, is to praise and sing praises to his name, especially here uh, uh, to his works. You'll notice the use of instruments in verse 3. Ten, I used to have a 12-string guitar. It's almost scriptural. Uh, this is a ten-string one. The psaltery, the harp, these are various uh, instruments. The harp probably was not like we think of a harp, but more like a, more like a guitar. These are just all 
uh, strung and they are made to be plucked, made to be bowed. You probably are aware that there are those who say that only vocal uh, voices should be singing. There should be no instrumental music uh, in the New Testament church. But uh, I would have you realize that Paul said we're to speak to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The word psalm is from the root to pluck. It's a song that is plucked, or we'd say today, picked. If you're in Nashville, that's what you'd say. He's a picker. They'd have said he's a plucker. He's a psalmer. That's what a psalm is. It's to be sung to a plucked instrument. And so the fact that Paul would say that we're to sing to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and uses that very word, tends to me uh, to imply that instruments are okay. Okay? All right. We'll go on a little bit further. Then notice in the next section, verses 7 through 11, we have a contrast between the righteous man and the wicked man. And this is a very common theme in in the Psalms. In fact, the first Psalm contrasts the life of the righteous man, his characteristics, with the man that's wicked. You know? Go back, look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In the law he meditates Day and night. Verse 4, the ungodly are not so. In other words, they are like uh, the chaff which the wind driveth away and, and so forth. So you see this contrast, very picturesque, picturesque contrast between the righteous man and the wicked man. Um, you'll see the same thing here in this psalm. You'll notice that, first of all, in verse 7, the, righteous, the uh, wicked man springs like the grass and... Uh, it would seem to me that the the idea here is expressing the abundance of the wicked. In other words, there's a whole bunch of them. Like you've got a whole lot of blades of grass out in your yard. There's a whole bunch of wicked folks out there. And not only are they numerous, but notice they are flourishing. And the flourishing speaks of like my grass. It just constantly grows. Constantly having to mow the stuff. I don't know what, I don't have a lot of grass or I don't have what you would normally call grass. It's more pasture and, uh, I don't know what we have that in, in a week will get ahead, uh, you know, knee high, uh, overnight, it seems like sometimes. But it's not only growing like grass, it's numerous like grass, but it's flourishing like grass. But notice that the reason they flourish is so that they can be destroyed. Uh, God likes to mow grass. <laughs> so he's got a lot of grass, and it grows real fast, and he mows it. When you say God mows his grass, what, what do you mean? Well, he knocks the top off of it. He tends to knock down this wicked grass that so many and, and grows. And just sort of do a, uh, uh, list in your mind of the number of folks that God has allowed to flourish in order to knock down. Pharaoh is the obvious example that Paul uses in Romans 9, that God raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, to show his glory. In other words, for God to demonstrate his power and his glory, he had to have an opponent, he had to have a mighty opponent, 
So he raised up Pharaoh so he could slap him down. I mean, you know, if you're going to have a champion like a boxer, you got to have somebody out there to hit. And so in this case, Pharaoh was his boxing dummy that God slapped down. Haman, in his seeking to his wits to annihilate the Jewish people, and God hung him on his own gallows. He outwitted this sly, wily fox named Haman. And, and just down through history, we see the same thing, of God allowing the wicked to flourish for a season, but then their day is over and God brings them down low. Uh, the old saying is almost every empire lasts for about a couple hundred years and then falls, and we may be the next one in line for that. It certainly looks that way to me. If things don't change, if something doesn't change, we're next in line. Uh, but the point is, is that nations, empires rise and fall. Kings, God puts on it sometimes on his throne, the basis of men. And uh, when their day's over, God mows them. So um, he's got lots of grass. He likes to mow. And notice in verse 8, they flourish, but they're going to be destroyed because God doesn't ever change. They, they get wiped out. They get mowed. He never, he never changed. And, um, your enemies are going to perish. They're going to scatter, but my horn shall be exalted. Now the horn in, uh, biblical language, lingo, uh, the pitcher is a pitcher of power, uh, oftentimes illustrates a king. I'm thinking of Daniel's prophecies where he sees this beast with one horn and then another horn comes up later and goes higher and he's illustrating the Medo-Persian Empire that the Medes were first and then the Persians came second and superseded the Medes. And you do that through speaking of a horn. You're all familiar with the beast in Revelation uh, with the seven heads and the ten horns and the ten horns representing the kings. So it's a picture of power, a picture of authority, and notice that the contrast here is that the wicked is going to be destroyed and scattered, but my horn shall be exalted. Uh, God's people will triumph in their God, and he'll be anointed, he says, with fresh oil. I'm not sure the uh, reason for fresh oil, but oil, of course, was the medium by which God would anoint the kings, the priests, and so forth, and he is exalting in that. Um, let's skip down to verse 12 through 15, because here is a another interesting thought, and I want you to think on this as we close tonight. A couple of questions for you. But the referencing the righteous like a tree. And again, go back to Psalm 1 where we had that contrast between the righteous and the wicked. You got the same Contrast seen there. The righteous are compared to a tree whose roots are planted by the river. Remember, by the water. Okay? So this is a sort of a common way of looking at things, but it's very uncommon for me. I don't tend to think of us as trees. But notice that here the righteous is compared to a tree. Verse 12, the righteous is going to flourish, flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Now, the palm tree and the cedar are about as opposite trees that I can imagine. Um, I'm assuming y'all, I, I was going to describe a palm tree, but I don't know how to describe it. You've seen it. you got to see it to believe it, I guess. It's a strange-looking tree. I don't see any palm trees around here. Very interesting tree. Where does a palm tree grow? 
mainly in the valleys and in the desert. That's where the palm trees are. On the other hand, the cedars, he says, it will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Where do the cedars grow? Up on the mountainside. The mountains, the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon, of course, was renowned for its forests. It was from there that David secured from King Hiram the lumber, the timber necessary to building the temple. And so notice these two contrasts. You've got the palm tree, which is a... I mean, to me, when you're not around palm trees very much, palm trees are weird. They're strange. Is that just me? Is that? And the fir tree, or the cedar tree, that's, that's more like a regular tree. But notice how distinct they are. And it would seem to be saying that there's qualities of the righteous that both these kinds of trees illustrate. The Hindus say that there's over 300 uses for a palm tree. 300. Well, the dates that grow for fruit, they're useful. The palm branches make a nice fan. You're Cleopatra. Got your slave fanning you. Or if you're down in Moganier, down there where we were just a few months ago, you remember that big thing they made of branches and leaves? That's what you would do with palm, palm branches. It becomes roofing material. Now I run out about three or four. I can't think of many other good uses for a palm tree, but the Hindus say there's 300 things that you can use a palm tree for. In other words, it's a very useful tree. It's a very stately tree. And a very useful tree. Same thing with the cedar. The cedar is very stately. It's very useful because from it comes the lumber that is used. I, I want you to think of the tree that best illustrates you. I'll give you some time to think on it. Now, you, now if you can think on two things at the same time, I won't keep on talking. But you, in the back of your mind, think of an answer to that question. What would be the tree that would best illustrate you. This idea of trees uh, illustrating people is, is again, a common one. Uh, we have the story of Gideon, who had 70 sons, and one of his sons, Abimelech, who was actually the son of a concubine, tried to kill all the other 70, but he missed one. One son, the youngest son named Jotham. And the men who uh, conspired with Abimelech to do this were in the little town of Shechem, which sits down there between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. So one night, Joth, uh, uh, his son, Jothan, gets up on the side of the mountain and shouts down to the inhabitants of Shechem this fable. Now, a fable is a fictional story where inanimate objects come to life. You know, Disney World does that all the time, Okay. And in this fable, Jotham tells this story about the trees of the forest were looking for a king. And they came to the, um can't remember which one was first. He came to the fig tree eventually. The fig tree's in there and says, well, you rule over us. And the fig tree said, no, I'm too busy, I'm, I'm too busy producing fruit. And then they went to the uh, olive tree. That's what it was. They went to the olive tree and said, you reign over us. The olive tree, no, I'm, I'm too busy making olives and, uh, from which they get oil. They went to the grapevine and said, you rule over us. No, I'm too busy making grapes. 
And finally they went to the bramble and said, well, you will love us. And the bramble said, well, I'm not doing anything else, so yeah, I'll do it. And of course, you see here what he's illustrating is Abimelech is just this worthless character who has taken upon himself to be king over everybody else, but he's like that worthless tree, the bramble. And the point is, is that the folks, the others who would have been good candidates for being king were too busy doing good stuff. They were too busy serving to reign. And so notice the idea of the good people were being fruitful and productive while Abimelech, this usurper, was just like the bramble. Okay? So uh, maybe that will give you a clue as to what kind of tree you are. That's the first question. What kind of tree are you? The second question is where are you planted? Where are you planted? Notice that these trees, verse 13 are planted in the house of the Lord and they flourish in the courts of our God. They are rooted in holy soil, we could say. They are rooted in God's courts. And they bring forth fruit even in old age. Hey, that's good to know. Even in old age, they'll be fat and flourishing. I got the fat down. The flourishing of no, no. I was thinking there's three F's here that would help us to illustrate the, the nature of the saint who is planted in the courts of the yard of the Lord, he's fat, he's flourishing, and he's fruitful. Those are the three qualities. He's fat with the sap, speaks of the inner life. He's flourishing, the word means verdant, green. He's not withered like that which was cursed. Thirdly, he's fruitful. He's bearing forth fruit even into old age. And so notice... They're trees, and they are trees that are planted in a particular spot. And their job is to show, the last verse of the psalm, that the Lord is upright, that He's my rock, and there's no unrighteousness in Him. Their job is to bring glory to God. Their job is to reflect the faithfulness of their God. In other words, we sometimes think it's, our job to bring attention to us so that we can divert people's attention to Jesus. You know, if you love me, you'll just love my little friend Jesus. We want to patronize Christ. I, I, I mean, I keep thinking, why is it that, you know, all these famous personalities are the ones that are put in the forefront? Because everybody likes them. You know, the rock star, the talented person, the, the actress, the actor. And if we can find a Christian one, we use them to try to get attention and say, if you like me, you'll sure love Jesus. When it's the other way around, that our job, it, it's like we sing the song, Let Others See Jesus in You. Depends on where you put the emphasis. Let others see Jesus in you, or let others see Jesus in you. Our job is to let others see Jesus in us. That they, as Jesus himself put it in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, but glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do you see the connection? They're seeing your good works, but they're not glorifying you. 
They're seeing your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. In other words, it becomes evident that he is the source, and that's exactly the tree's job, is to express the fact that God is their rock, there's no unrighteousness in him. Okay, well, let's think about this question a minute. What kind of tree are you? Who wants to go first? Anthony? Palm tree. Why? It's encouraging, okay? Rest, shade, respite. I thought you were going to say because it's short. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Jim. It's on the beach, on the frontier, on the edge, okay? Y'all are wearing these out. Now, there's other kinds of trees out there besides cedars and palms and, you know, so forth. What What do you think would... Uh, what's a good tree? We learn from the story, Jotham, that any kind of a fruit tree is a good tree. An apple tree. A peach tree. Bradford pear. Yeah. Without... <laughs> looks great, but... Oh, breaks breaks easily, breaks easily. Lots of maintenance required. Good good point. Yeah, Greg. Slow growing, a slow growing tree, a redwood perhaps or something. Uh, I was thinking when I grew up in Texas, the only trees we had, we didn't have the nice hardwoods like you have here. Uh, anybody know what a bodark tree is? I lived right the creek down the bottom of our farm was Bodark Creek. Uh, the only thing a bodark was good for was fence posts. It's because it never would rot. The worms would never eat it. It was so tough and hard and scraggly that it's all you did. Uh, it's all I ever knew that they did, outside of making horse apples. They call them bodark apples, which were poisonous. Uh, bodark was absolutely good for nothing except fence posts. And hackberry. You might know what a hackberry. That was another tree we grew good, absolutely Good for nothing. You think if it's got berry in its name, it ought to be good for something? No, not a hackberry. I don't know what a... I, I, a little old... Anyway. Yes, berry. Good for burning. You know some people like that? <laughs> good for burning. <laughs> yeah. Melanie? Evergreens. Yes, that's an interesting way. That's an interesting thought because that is, back in Psalm 1, what is being expressed there. That you have the righteous man is like a tree that's planted near the water. And the idea is, is that tree whose roots are able to tap into the unseen moisture beneath the soil is not dependent on rain falling from above. It stays green. It stays flourishing, bears fruit, the psalmist says, whether there's drought. It doesn't care. That's an interesting way, interesting expression. It doesn't care when drought comes because it has an unseen source of nourishment. So it continues green and bearing fruit even though the outside circumstances are are against it. The wicked, he says, are like the heath. This is out of Jeremiah, but it's the same, same idea. Heath is like the sagebrush. Everywhere you go, 
you know, there's something that covers the ground. There's ground cover. Um, I remember in Scotland looking at this scraggly stuff going up the sides of the hills there. It looked like sagebrush. It looks like what we had out west. And I asked some of the locals, what do you call that stuff? And they said bracken. Bracken. It was a dark greenish scraggly thing. And you know when you say something looks brackish, sort of dark green, stomach turning green, that type of thing. And that's what this was. And everywhere you've got this wild growth that when nothing else will grow there, this stuff will grow. It's like sagebrush. And the, the, the wicked man is like that. And why the wicked man is like that is that in the summer when there's no rain, it gets brown as it can be. You let it rain, it greens right up. A few days later, it's right back to being brown again. In other words, it's completely controlled by outside circumstances, whereas the tree that's planted by the river doesn't matter whether it's raining or not. It always has a source of water. So, evergreen, that's an excellent illustration. All right, anybody else want to take a stab at it? Barry? You're backing up on the hackberry, huh? Yeah. If if they're like what we had, you wouldn't want anything made of hackberry. Let's put it that way. It 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 manages even in the midst of the most unpleasant circumstances and environment. Well, and I was thinking in Monterey, you have those trees that grow out the side of the rocks, out the side of the cliffs and stuff. Beautiful, beautiful things. And growing in the most unlikely of scenarios. All right. Well, second question is not just what kind of tree are you, but where are you planted? I was thinking about this idea of being planted in the courts of the Lord and saying, well, I don't ever remember any statement about anybody ever planting trees. In fact, the groves, you know, the altar of the groves was bad. Uh, But then the thought hit me that if we think of the Garden of Eden as God's courtyard, His Holy of Holies, uh, what's right there in the middle of it? It's the tree of life. Same picture in the book of Revelation, the water of life flowing from the throne and the tree of life growing on both sides of the river. And so there is this allusion to trees that are given life. Uh, but where are you planted? That's an interesting question. Where is it that I have sunk my roots? And where am I drawing nourishment from? You know, that which I'm seeking life for. Where, where, where is... The... And I won't make you answer uh, to keep from embarrassing you, but I'm afraid a lot of us, we're not rooted in the court of the Lord. We're rooted here, there, and everywhere. Darren? Yeah. In the courts of the Lord. Yeah, good observation. Didn't just get there by accident. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll stop here and uh hope that you
can remember some of these themes. And as we said, a lot of these things are repeated elsewhere in the book of Psalms. Very interesting allusions to us as trees, planted, fruitful, fat, flourishing, and fruitful. I got one of those down. (laughs) I don't know about the other two. Um, Let us go to the Lord uh, tonight.